0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: From Bonnie, London town, this is Obscure Season 4. In American Tragedy, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, excited about the coming week now. Look, I know, I know, none of you on this book podcast signed up to hear diddly squat about my fascination with UFOs. I know. I know that I have bent your ear in previous episodes talking about this anomalous phenomena. Nevertheless, I will just draw your attention to the coming week, although I guess by the time this comes out, the week will have ended and whatever mysteries to be revealed will have been revealed. But this coming Wednesday, July 26th, the House of Representatives is holding an open hearing on UFOs, and uh, David Grush, if you are familiar with that name, is one of the three witnesses scheduled to testify. He is the so-called whistleblower who made a big splash when he alleged that the U.S. is in possession of several craft of unknown origin and has been for decades, Grush is not your ordinary UFO enthusiast. He is a highly placed intelligence officer who was uh, a liaison for Arrow, which is the UFO um, committee. And uh, yeah, he, he came out with some startling allegations, none of which to this point have been disproven or proven, I should add. He has testified to Congress before, and now he is going to be testifying in an open hearing, along with two pilots who are witnesses to various UAP encounters. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's what's got me all kind of jazzed up for the week. I don't expect anything particularly revelatory to occur in these hearings. Nevertheless, I will be watching with some interest. Also, this week, I will be watching with some interest the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Oklahoma which I have never seen. I don't even know what it's about. Other than, I think it's like, I think it's like Brokeback Mountain or something like that. And this is the new production that was in New York for a little while. Uh, now it's in London. The wife and I bought tickets. Uh, we're gonna be hooting and hollering and stomping our feet and uh, and 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 just, just enjoying the hell out of that, I hope. I also hope it's not three hours long. Because you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they can drag on a little bit. You know, I mean, back in the 50s, when they were writing this shit, people have longer attention spans. I can't be sitting there for three hours watching cowboys do do-sy-dos. I do not I don't have that kind of patience. So it's a week of news and culture coming up for me as I start to think about winding down my time here in London. I will be traveling to Los Angeles at the end of the month for a project which has not been announced. I'll be there for about a week. It's, it's no great shakes. Like, don't be like, oh, that's exciting. It's not that exciting. It'll be fun. No doubt it'll be fun, but it won't be that exciting. But more importantly, it will be profitable, which is all I really care about. Profitable and fun. And, you know, get to go to L.A. And you know what I like to do when I'm out in L.A.? Play poker. Haven't played poker in months. So I'll be doing a little bit of that, a little bit of shooting. Uh, my daughter, who lives in L.A., sadly will not be there when I'm there. So I won't get to see her. So that's that's a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, on the other hand, we have nothing to talk about, so it's probably better. Speaking of daughters, the Griffith's daughter, the eldest Griffith's daughter, Hester, known as Esther, has absconded with a ne'er-do-well, kind of a James Franco type, blowing into town, seducing young gals, and, uh, and taking them for all they're worth. Last episode, I described him as a John Hamm type because it could, John, John Ham's from Kansas City, handsome, but he's not a ne'er do well. He's a fine, upstanding gentleman. James Franco, I think we can all agree, more of a ne'er do well. You know, he's got all kinds of shitty allegations against him. Nothing illegal, just you know, kind of shitty, creepy, bad. Uh, maybe he's straightened himself out. I don't know. I don't think he's. I don't think he ever ruined anybody or. You know, did anything like so terrible. I think just guilty of shitty behavior. That's my understanding. If I've got it wrong, don't yell at me. I only have a cursory understanding of what James Franco's life is like. So just don't give me any, any guff about it. I'm just trying to draw an analogy between this actor that Hester, known as Esta, ran off with there in Kansas City and a contemporary American actor that we all know. So the, the 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 parents are now having discovered that their daughter is gone. You know, these, these fine, upstanding religious folk, it can't get their head around it. What the hell did, what the hell happened? The air was thick with misery. That's the last sentence uh, where we left it off last time. So let's pick it up again. Chapter three, I think we're on. Well, I think we're on chapter three. Yeah, chapter three in American tragedy. And as his parents talked in their little room, Clyde brooded too, for he was intensely curious about life now. What was it Esther had really done? Was it, as he feared and thought, one of those dreadful runaway or sexually disagreeable affairs which the boys on the streets and at school were always slyly talking about? How shameful if that were true. She might never come back. She had gone with some man. There was something wrong about that, no doubt. For a girl, anyhow. For all he had ever heard was that all decent contacts between boys and girls, men and women, led to but one thing. Marriage. And now Esta, in addition to their other troubles, had gone in dumbness. Certainly, this home life of theirs was pretty dark now, and it would be darker instead of brighter because of this. So I just wanted—I just want to go back for a second, just to see if I can understand a little bit about Dreiser's attitude here. I mean, it's—it's it's reportage. <coughs> I've got to cough a little bit. A little tickle in the throat. It's reportage. You know, he's just saying what's true, particularly for those times. There was something wrong about that, no doubt, for a girl, anyhow. And that all he'd ever heard was that if you're going to have decent contact between girls and boys and men and women, it can only lead to one place, and that's marriage. Well, indecent contact can lead to all sorts of trials and tribulations, and that's what he fears is happening with his sister. Presently, the parents came out, and then Mrs. Griffith's face, if still set and constrained, was somehow a little different, less savage, perhaps, more hopelessly resigned. Estes seemed fit to leave us for a little while, anyhow, was all she said at first, seeing the children waiting curiously. Now you're not to worry about her at all, or think any more about it, <laughs> Just don't think about it. (laughs) You know, your sister's run off with James Franco. Don't even think about it. It's probably fine. She'll come back after a while, I'm sure. She has chosen to go her own way for a time for some reason. The Lord's will be done. Blessed be the name of the Lord, interpolated Asa. I thought she was happy here with us, but apparently she wasn't. She must see something of the world for herself, I suppose. Here Asa put in another. But we mustn't harbor hard thoughts. That won't do any good now. Only thoughts of love and kindness. Yet she said this with a kind of sternness that somehow belied it. A click of the voice, as it were. Oh, I like that phrase. A click of the voice. Let me see if I can interject a click of the voice in my reading of it. I doubt it, but let's, let's see. Um, I thought she was happy here with us, but apparently she wasn't. She must see something of the world for herself, I suppose. But we mustn't harbor hard thoughts. That won't do any good now. Only thoughts of love and kindness. I think I got it a little clicky. We can only hope that she will soon see how foolish she has been and unthinking and come back. She can't prosper on the course she's going now. It isn't the Lord's way or will. She's too young, and she's made a mistake, but we can forgive her. We must. Our hearts must be kept open, soft, and tender. She talked as though she were addressing a meeting, but with a hard, sad, frozen face and voice. Now all of you go to bed. We can only pray now, and hope, morning, noon, and night, that no evil will befall her. I wish she hadn't done that, she added, quite out of keeping with the rest of her statement and really not thinking of the children as present at all, just of Esther. Oh, now I got to sneeze. I mean, this is what happens. Oh, gosh. I mean, it will be worse if I don't sneeze. (laughs) I like like to have a musical sneeze. If you're going to sneeze, you might as well make music out of it. But Asa such a father as Clyde often thought afterwards. Apart from his own misery, he seemed only to note and be impressed by the more significant misery of his wife. During all this, he had stood foolishly to one side, short, gray, frizzled, inadequate. Well, blessed be the name of the Lord, he interpolated from time to time, we must keep our hearts open. Yes, we mustn't judge. We must only hope for the best. Yes, yes, praise the Lord. We must praise the Lord. Amen. Oh, yes. If anyone asks where she is, continued Mister Griffiths, Mrs. Griffiths after a time, quite ignoring her spouse and addressing the children who had drawn near her we will say that she has gone on a visit to some of my relatives back in Tonawanda. That won't be the truth exactly, but then we don't know where she is or what the truth is, and she may come back. So we must not say or do anything that will injure her until we know. Yes, praise the Lord, called Asa feebly. So if anyone should inquire at any time until we know, we will say that. Sure, and put in Clyde helpfully, and Julia added, all right. Mrs. Griffiths paused and looked firmly and yet apologetically at her children. Asa, for his part, emitted another, I, I, I wish you would stop doing that because I want to stop doing it. And then the children were waved to bed. At that, Clyde, who really wanted to know what Esther's letter had said, but was convinced from long experience that his mother would not let him know unless she chose. Returned to his room again, for he was tired. Why didn't they search more if there was hope of finding her? Where was she now, at this minute? On some train somewhere? Evidently she didn't want to be found. She was probably dissatisfied, just as he was. Here he was, thinking so recently of going away somewhere himself. Wondering how the family would take it, and now she had gone before him. How would that affect his point of view and action in the future? Truly, in spite of his father's and mother's misery, he could not see that her going was such a calamity. Not from the going point of view, at any rate. It was only after something which hinted that things were not right here. Mission work was nothing. All this religious emotion and talk was not so much either. It hadn't saved Desta. Evidently, like himself, she didn't believe so much in it either. End of chapter three. So, you know, we're, we're left with a with a quandary and a little bit of a cliffhanger and some questions. What's going on with these people? What's going on with these kids rebelling against the Griffiths? What's going on with the ineffectual Asa Griffiths. And I'm wondering if this book is to be about, in some sense, the failure of man, and by that I mean the gender of man, to control his own fate in this new world, in these roaring 20s. And so much is undergoing upheaval in the country, and there's a kind of freneticness Is that a word? Let's call it a word. There's kind of a freneticness that has gripped the country in the wake of the First World War. So much upheaval. So much death, destruction, and damage. What is the role of the man now? And here we have the matriarch in the family taking charge. Stern, attempting to be loving, and kind of failing at it. Which, you know, is what happens. But who is, she, who is she mad at? I mean, she's mad at her daughter, but why? That's always a question, I think, with rebellious children. What is that fear? What is that anger? Is it because they have rejected your worldview? That's a question, don't you think? It, you know, when, when um, you know, you've know you tried to teach them something and they've rejected it. So the, is the anger because, because they've, in a sense, rejected you? I think maybe it is. And isn't that a form of narcissism? So let us contemplate those questions as we take a quick break here on Obscure.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
1: Back in obscure, rebellious children, ungrateful, no good, punk rock kids, doing whatever whatever the hell they see fit in defiance of God and man, or in this case, God and woman. Mrs. Griffiths, furious with her daughter, but trying to keep a lid on it for the sake of the other children. No doubt worried to death about her as well. I don't mean to imply that she does not love her daughter. Of course she does. But... We also know that parents sometimes get infuriated with children who refuse to walk in their footsteps. Let us pick it up now with Chapter 4. The effect of this particular conclusion was to cause Clyde to think harder than ever about himself. And the principal result of this thinking was that he must do something for himself, and soon, up to this time, the best he had been able to do was to work at such odd jobs as befall all boys between their twelfth and fifteenth years, assisting a man who had a paper route during the summer months of one year, working in the basement of a five-and-ten-cent store all one summer long, and on Saturdays, for a period during the winter, opening boxes and unpacking goods, for which he received a munificent sum of five dollars a week, a sum which at the time seemed almost a fortune. He felt himself rich, and in the face of the opposition of his parents, who were opposed to the theater and motion pictures also, as being not only worldly, but sinful, he could occasionally go to one or another of those in the gallery, a form of diversion which he had to conceal from his parents. Yet that did not deter him. He felt that he had a right to go with his own money, also to take his younger brother, Frank, who was glad enough to go with him and say nothing. Good for him. Probably going out there and seeing some of them Jam- James Franco movies. And then the next thing you know, that self-same actor absconding with his sister, wearing nothing more but than, uh, than bloomers. She, she She was wearing nothing more than bloomers. I don't know. I think bloomers were probably out by the 1920s, but I like the image of them. Later in the same year, wishing to get out of school because he already felt himself very much belated in the race, he secured a place as an assistant to a soda water clerk in one of the cheaper drugstores of the city, which adjoined a theater and enjoyed not a little patronage of this sort. Now, now my question, the reason I laughed is because... uh, why does a soda water clerk need an assistant particularly? It seems like soda water clerk is about as low on the employment food chain as you can get. I mean, you're just dishing out soda water, are you not? Some sarsaparillas, you know, some newfangled colas or some such thing. Doesn't seem like somebody like that would need uh, would need an assistant of any kind whatsoever. I mean, maybe to carry up the big jugs of carbon dioxide, but... Geez, it just doesn't seem like that would be a job. A sign boy wanted, since it was directly on his way to school, first interested him. Later, in conversation with the young man whose assistant he was to be, and from whom he was to learn the trade, assuming that he was sufficiently willing and facile, he gathered that if he mastered this art... He might make as much as fifteen and even eighteen dollars a week. It was rumored that Stroud's, at the corner of Fourteenth and Baltimore streets, paid that much to two of their clerks. The particular store to which he was applying paid only twelve, the standard salary of most places. But to acquire this art-this is the art of soda water-was, as he was now informed, required time and the friendly help of an expert. If he wished to come here and work for five, to begin with, well, six then, since his face fell, he might soon expect to know a great deal about the art of mixing sweet drinks and decorating a large variety of ice creams with liquid sweets, thus turning them into sundays. For the time being, apprenticeship meant washing and polishing all the machinery and implements of this particular counter, to say nothing of opening and sweeping out the store at so early an hour as 7.30, dusting, and delivering such orders as the owner of this drugstore chose to send out by him. At such idle moments as his immediate superior, a Mr. Seiberling or Seiberling, twenty, dashing, self-confident, talkative, was too busy to fill all the orders. He might be called upon to mix such minor drinks— Lemonades, Coca-Cola's and the like, as the trade demanded. So, I guess soda clerk is a far more taxing profession than I would ever have imagined. I guess it's something like being a, a mixologist, you know? You don't just start as a mixologist. Maybe you get a job as a bar back first. Taking the glasses, wiping down the bar. No, but nobody's going to entrust you to, to make a a, a a martini your first time out even though it's really just vodka or gin and a touch of vermouth. Maybe you throw an olive in there, but still. These are highly specialized skills. These are crafts that people devote enormous amounts of time to learning. You think you can just whip up a sarsaparilla? Heck no. Somebody's got to get the birch to make the birch beer. Well, that's going to be our young Mr. Griffiths, in addition to the sweeping and the cleaning of the machinery. You think you just, you think you just come into this world knowing how to make a lime ricky? Heck no. Or a green river? Forget about it. This is the kind of alchemical sorcery that is passed from, uh, from soda clerk to soda clerk in the back rooms of drugstores all across the nation. Necromancers, all. You start out as a lowly assistant, and then, over time, if you, sh- if you, if, if you demonstrate facility, then maybe you learn to make an egg cream. But not before. Yet this interesting position, after due consultation with his mother, he decided to take. For one thing, it would provide him, as he suspected, with all the ice cream sodas he desired, free. An advantage not to be disregarded. Amen to that. Man, can you imagine? Can you imagine all the, the ice cream sodas you want? On a whim, you're like, hey, I feel like an ice cream soda. Have at it, Charlie. Might mix a scoop of chocolate chip with some lemonade! Why not? It's free. If I don't like it, I can just toss the whole thing in the trash. In the next place, as he saw it at the time, it was an open door to a trade, something which he lacked. Further, and not at all disadvantageously as he saw it, this store required his presence at night as late as 12 o'clock, with certain hours off during the day to compensate for this, and this took him out of his home at night out of the t- 10 o'clock boy class at last meaning he didn't have to be home by 10 they could not ask him to attend any meeting save on sunday and not even then since he was supposed to work sunday afternoons and evenings next the clerk who manipulated this particular soda fountain quite regularly received passes from the manager of the theater next door and into the lobby of which one door to the drugstore gave a most fascinating connection to Clyde. It seemed so interesting to be working for a drugstore thus intimately connected with a theater. And best of all, as Clyde now found to his pleasure, and yet despair at times, the place was visited just before and after the show on matinee days by bevies of girls, single and en suite, who sat at the counter and giggled and chattered and gave their hair and their com- their complexions last perfecting touches before the mirror and clyde callow and inexperienced in the ways of the world and those of the opposite sex was never weary of observing the beauty the daring the self-sufficiency and the sweetness of these as he saw them you know i was just having this thought the other day Uh, Just walking through London town, you know. And uh, the eye happened to glance, my eye that is, not the eye, my eye, happened to glance a gal walking down the street. And of course, my attention was drawn to her. And I had this thought as it happened. You know, I'm now in my 50s. And yet here I am still ogling girls left and right. It just doesn't stop. And I thought to myself, self, this is just muscle memory, That's going on with you. You see a pretty girl, your eye goes there and you you can't take your eye off her. That's just muscle memory. It's not desire in any meaningful way. I don't desire to be with this person. I don't desire to take her on my arm and, you know, go to a slow dance or something or take her to the soda counter and sit there with Clyde mixing us up in ice cream soda. It's just muscle memory. I mean, maybe, maybe the eye's just drawn to beauty regardless. But my, like my eye doesn't go to beautiful men in the same way. They, I mean, honestly, beauty has very, almost nothing to do with it. It's just, I see a gal, my eye goes there. It's biological, no doubt, but geez, it's annoying. It's annoying that so much of my brain power, even at this advanced age, is occupied with thoughts of the fairer sex. I don't think it ever goes away. Maybe it does, I don't know. Uh, where was I? For the first time in his life, while he busied himself with washing glasses, filling the ice cream and syrup containers, arranging the lemons and oranges in the trays, he had an almost uninterrupted opportunity of studying these girls at close range. The wonder of them. For the most part, They were so well-dressed and smart-looking, the rings, pins, furs, delightful hats, pretty shoes they wore. And so often he overheard them discussing such interesting things, parties, dances, dinners, the shows they had seen, the places in or near Kansas City to which they were soon going, the difference between the styles of this year and last, The fascination of certain actors and actresses, principally actors, who were now playing or soon coming to the city. And to this day, in his own home, he had heard nothing of all this. And very often, one or another of these young beauties was accompanied by some male in evening suit, dress shirt, high hat, bow tie, white kid gloves, and patent leather shoes a costume which, at that time, Clyde felt to be the last word in all true distinction, beauty, gallantry, and bliss. To be able to wear such a suit with such ease and air, to be able to talk to a girl after the manner and with the sang-froid of some of these gallants. Now, I'll be honest, I've seen that word, sang-froid, throughout my life. No idea what it means. I mean, I have some vague contextual idea, but I feel like I should crank up the old research machine and get a proper definition of sang froid. Let's see what does it mean: composure or coolness shown in danger or under trying circumstances. Oh, it's sang froi, sang froid. Right, let me just see. Let's hear. It. Let's let's listen to the. Correct pronunciation, shall we?
0: Sangfroid.
1: Sangfroid. Sang Sangfroid. All right. But I'm not sure why uh, why these circumstances should be dangerous or trying for these fellows. It seems to me uh, that it's the very opposite. And with the sangfroid of some of these gallants, what a true measure of achievement! No good-looking girl, as it then appeared to him, would have anything to do with him if he did not possess this standard of equipment. It was plainly necessary, the thing, and once he did attain it, was able to wear such clothes as these. Well, then was he not well set upon the path that leads to all the blisses, (laughs) all the blisses, all the joys of life, would then most certainly be spread before him, the friendly smiles, the secret hand clasps, maybe, an arm about the waist of someone or another, a kiss, a promise of marriage, and then, and then, I'm not adding the second and then, that was Dreiser's doing, and I think we understand the implication of what happens after marriage, even though it seems to me Clyde may not entirely, and aren't we all a little touched um, that Clyde, in his own naivete and uh, and optimism, thinks thinks of, of of these steps as the necessary order in life? Is there something touching about it? The and then and then must not precede marriage, and. Uh, You know, different times, I suppose. And all this as a revealing flash after all the years of walking through the streets with his father and mother to public prayer meetings, the sitting in chapel and listening to queer and nondescript individuals, depressing and disconcerting people, telling how Christ had saved them and what God had done for them. You bet he would get out of that now. He would work and save his money and be somebody. Decidedly, this simple and yet idyllic compound of the commonplace had all the luster and wonder of a spiritual transfiguration, the true mirage of the lost and thirsting and seeking victim of the desert. Oh, that's an interesting sentence. I want to go back. And re-examine it. Okay, he would work and save his money and be somebody. Decidedly this simple and yet idyllic compound of the commonplace. So the, the 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 compound, the idyllic compound of the commonplace is working and saving money and being somebody. Had all the luster and wonder of a spiritual transfiguration. The true mirage. Of the lost and thirsting and seeking victim of the desert. So, Dreiser is kind of saying a mouthful here. And I suspect there's also a touch of foreshadowing, is there not? Dreiser is saying that Clyde's attitude is, I'm going to work, I'm going to save, and I'm going to be somebody. And that credo had the effect uh, of a spiritual transfiguration on him. Now, Clyde, of course, coming from a spiritual family. So, the spirit did not take hold in the ethereal. It is only taking hold for him in the material, right? He is saying, it is is in practicing this new faith, the faith of capitalism, that he will undergo this spiritual transfiguration upon which he will discover, quote, all the blisses. So it's a kind of, re- it's the reverse promise of the home in which he was raised, in which if you devote yourself to the spiritual, you will eventually um, receive all the blisses, those heavenly blisses. And, but heaven holds no promise for him. Only earthly bliss holds promise for him, right? So um, it's a new kind of religion here. It is It is the religion of capitalism. It is the religion of the pursuit of material and sang-froid that will get him into this next world because that's really what he's seeking he's seeking to escape from one world this world of uh you know rambling through the streets preaching to the next world the world of sitting on the other side of the soda counter with a girl on his arm and the promise of marriage and then and then okay but in the very next sentence he says the true mirage Of the lost and thirsting and seeking victim of the desert. So Dreiser is injecting his opinion here. He's sort of telling us where this book is going to go. He's saying all of that, all of that lusting for material wealth, for the bliss of the earth, is in fact a mirage. A true mirage. You are lost, you are thirsting, you are seeking, but you are in the desert and you are a victim. Question is, for me, Dreiser has, has painted one aspect of life, this kind of shambling, impoverished um, religiosity. And he's contrasted that with the sang froid of the gentleman in the high hats and the good bow ties. And the theater tickets and he seems to be saying neither of them are the correct path is that what he's saying i don't know yet i suppose we'll have to read on just a little bit more um well 700 pages more anyway to figure out where he's heading with it however the trouble with this particular position meaning the job as time speedily proved was that much as it might teach him of mixing drinks and how to eventually earn $12 a week, it was no immediate solvent for the yearnings and ambitions that were already gnawing at his vitals. For Albert Sieberling, his immediate superior, was determined to keep as much of his knowledge, as well as the most pleasant parts of the tasks, to himself. And further. He was quite at one with the druggist for whom they worked in thinking that Clyde, in addition to assisting him about the fountain, should run such errands as the druggist desired, which kept Clyde industriously employed for nearly all the hours he was on duty. Consequently, there was no immediate result to all this. Clyde could see no way to dressing better than he did. Worse, he was haunted by the fact that he had very little money and very few contacts and connections, so few that outside his own home he was lonely and not so very much less than lonely there. Wait, let me read that again. He was lonely and not so very much less than lonely there. Got it. The flight of Esther had thrown a chill over the religious work there, and because as yet she had not returned, the family as he now heard, was thinking of breaking up here and moving, for want of a better idea, to Denver, Colorado. But Clyde by now, incidentally, Denver, Colorado, my God, the state, my old sketch comedy troupe, is doing a show in Denver, Colorado at the end of August. If you have any interest in going, get yourself out to Denver and come see the state. Should be fun. But Clyde by now, was convinced that he did not wish to accompany them. What was the good of it, he asked himself. There would be just another mission there, the same as this one. He had always lived at home, in the rooms at the rear of the mission in Bickle Street, but he hated it. And since his 11th year, during all of which time his family had been residing in Kansas City, he had been ashamed to bring boyfriends to or near it. For that reason... He had always avoided boyfriends friends and had walked and played very much alone or with his brother and sisters. But now that he was 16 and old enough to make his own way, he ought to be getting out of this, and yet he was earning almost nothing, not enough to live on if he were alone, and he had not as yet developed sufficient skill or courage to get anything better. Nevertheless, When his parents began to talk of moving to Denver and suggested that he might secure work out there, never assuming for a moment that he would not want to go, he began to throw out hints to the effect that it might be better if he did not. He liked Kansas City. What was the use of changing? He had a job now and he might get something better. But his parents, bethinking themselves of Esther and the fate that had overtaken her, were not a little dubious as to the outcome of such early adventuring on his part alone. Once they were away, where would he live, with whom, what sort of influence would enter his life, who would be at hand to aid and counsel and guide him in the straight and narrow path as they had done? It was something to think about. And we will let them think about it as we conclude... This episode of Obscure, Clyde, Itchy Feet Clyde. Ready to tap dance on out of his family's hearth and home to find greener pastures somewhere. We know, of course, where he's heading eventually to the East Coast. Maybe his, his sister will precede him there. I don't think this is the last we've heard of Hester known as Esta by any stretch of the imagination. The only question is what circumstances will we find her? in when we make our reacquaintance. I suspect not very good circumstances. Um, but we're setting up a kind of, oh, I don't know, examination of contemporary, and by contemporary I mean 20s, 1920s, of times. You know, we're, we're seeing the forces at play here. The rural, the industrial, the uh, capitalist, the materialist, the spiritual, the longing of the youth, the gathering storms in this family, all of which being played out on a grand scale. I only say it's a grand scale because the book is so long. I have no idea. But, uh, yeah, pretty good. Pretty good stuff there, Teddy Dreiser. We'll pick it up again next week on another delicious episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. See you next time.